will be opening your Bibles to John 18. John 18. We'll be using first portions of that chapter as the basis for the sermon tonight. As we read about the life of Christ throughout His ministry, He demanded those around Him to hear. He wanted people to hear what He was saying. He wanted them to listen to what He was saying. But there is a great difference between hearing and listening, isn't there? Sometimes we hear things and we're not really listening. I've been accused of that from time to time. Now, I don't believe that's the case, but that's what I've been told. Hearing is more like being hit by the car that honked the horn. Listening is getting out of the way when the car honks the horn. And so there is a difference to that. And when we look at that and understand really the meaning, when Christ asked someone to hear, what He intended was for them to listen to what He had to say and to act accordingly. Do what He has asked to be done and do it faithfully. Of course, as we... Begin chapter 18 of John. What has happened prior to that is the Lord had participated in the Passover supper. He had instituted the Lord's supper. And after having done that and eaten the meal with His disciples, He passed over the brook Kidron and He led them out into the dark recesses of the Garden of Gethsemane. Of course, as He went into the Garden of Gethsemane, He left... The greater portion of the disciples uh, at the edge of the garden, and then he took three of those eleven, because Judas had gone. He took three of those eleven and went a little further on into the garden. Of course, that was Peter, James, and John. They were sort of the inner circle of the friends upon whom he relied. Not that he loved them any more than he loved the other disciples, or anyone for that matter, but... As we live in this life, we make connections with people, and sometimes we make closer connections with some people than we do others, and that's okay. We see that the Lord had a very close relationship with the brothers James and John and with Peter. So He took those three on a little further into the garden with Him, and then after a little bit further, He left them at that point, and He went even further in there. And, of course, his purpose was to go on into the garden and he was going to commune with God. When we look in Luke 22, verse 44, we understand that, and it is described for us after he went a little further to pray more earnestly, and Luke said, "...in his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground." And I think that it was at that point that the man Jesus began to come to terms with what lay ahead of him. The great sacrifice he was to make on behalf of an uncaring, unloving world. Isaiah made a statement in prophesying what would happen. Isaiah 53, beginning with verse 4, it says, Surely he hath borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. 
We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Of course, Jesus was well aware of the mission he was sent to fulfill. He was uh, God, always had been from the beginning. We read about him in the very first chapter of our book this evening, John chapter 1, the Word was with God, the Word was God. But at the same time, God manifests Himself in the, in the person of Jesus. Jesus had a beginning, the, the man. God has not, never had a beginning, never had an ending. He just always has been. But the physical form of Jesus had a beginning in this world. And so He was 100% God. At the same time, He was 100% man. And he was uh, a man who still had to face emotionally the things that were about to happen. And we see that in his interaction with the Lord. He cried unto God, the Father, the one he knew could help him. And we see him wrestling with what was about to happen. Gethsemane, of course, was a place of comfort for the Christ. He would often go there for rest and prayer and uh, instruction to the disciples. Now this evening, I want us to be reminded of the events that happened in that garden prior to His lawless arrest. But I want us to focus on someone that maybe we do not focus on a lot of the time. But this person had a lot to do with what was happening. His name was Malchus. Malchus was the servant of the high priest in When he went into that garden to help arrest this man, Jesus, the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, deity in the flesh, he lost a right ear in the process. The title of the sermon this evening is, It Wasn't His Ear That Kept Him From Hearing. Now as the acts which affected all of us began to unfold in that garden, that time would be no different than any other time when Jesus faced adversity. He went to Gethsemane, and He certainly went to the Father in prayer. And it was in that garden where this meeting took place. That's our first point. The Savior fortified Himself in prayer, didn't He? And that was common for Him. We notice as we read about His life prior to choosing the disciples who would be His apostles, He went to God in prayer when he would uh, feel the great burden of the things he had to endure in this life, he would take time apart from people to commune with God in prayer. We know when he sat down to have a meal, he communed with God. He was always showing his thanksgiving to uh, the Father for the blessings that he had in this life. He thanked the Father for the disciples. He prayed to Him for their benefit and for their faithfulness. And so he had a very important... uh, relationship with the Father, and he accessed that through prayer. Now, he was about to be arrested, and we know, reading in the passage, that he knew what was going to happen. They didn't sneak up on him, but he still, he went to the uh, the Father in prayer, and not only was he praying for himself, which he was, and which is perfectly acceptable and expected, but he also prayed for the disciples because the events that were about to take place would offer temptations to those disciples, and many of them were not going to be able to bear it. So, he sought heavenly aid 
during this time of worry. But, notice that he also needed human sympathy. He was a man. He was a person. He needed those whom he loved and cared for, and who loved and cared for him, to be around him to help him during this time. Notice what Matthew said, Matthew 26, 38. Speaking of Jesus, he made this statement. He said, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Now here it is. He told those three, Tarry ye here and watch with me. What does that mean? Have you ever sat at the bedside of someone who was going through an illness or a sickness in the hospital? We all have. Why? Because they were sorrowful for those things that were happening, and they needed the comfort of somebody. They need the comfort of God. But we also need the comfort of our uh, those around us, our peers, our fellow men. And we see that example in Jesus. And as we read the accounts of what happened to Christ, leading up to that terrible event where He gave Himself, we know that the use of the phrase unto death was not rhetoric. He meant that. He was sorrowful unto death. The stress he was enduring, that alone was threatening his physical being. That's not what killed him. But that was enough to kill probably the average person who did not have the strength that Jesus had. So not only did he need their sympathy, he also very likely would have needed their physical help in case he had a physical collapse as he was in that garden. So we notice that he prostrated himself before the Father and he made a plea to him, verse 39 of Matthew 26. He said, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. Now we should never allow that to impact our faith, that Christ pleaded before the Father and said, Hey, if it is your will, if it's possible, If there's any other way, let's do that. But notice the key phrase, but not my will, but thine be done. We shouldn't allow that to cause us to think less of Jesus. That doesn't make Him less deity. You can't be more or less deity. You're either God or you're not. And He had every characteristic and aspect within Him of God. In fact, that ought to make us appreciate Him more because He went against the physical yearnings of His body to not want that to happen. No one looks forward to something painful, do we? We don't look forward to that. We want to avoid that at all costs. That's just a natural part of humanity, self-preservation, right? But Christ, in His great love for humanity, His great love for the Father, He was willing to go ahead and give Himself. And we notice that Jesus approached the Father on two different occasions. And we notice as He returned, what did He find? He found the disciples sleeping. Now that's a very interesting term used there. He found them asleep. Now what the the language indicates to us, brethren, is that they cried themselves to sleep. It wasn't that they thought it was a frivolous thing and they just needed to rest. They had cried themselves to sleep. They understood. They'd been told what was going to happen. You remember back uh, prior to this when uh, Peter told uh, Jesus, said, I'll go to the death for you. He was willing. He was ready to go to war. And they knew something bad was going to happen. He had told them 
that he would have to give his life. So these men had cried themselves to sleep. Of course, verse 45 of Matthew 26 says, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. On that last time he came back, and he had been asking all along, uh, wake up and pray with me, be with me. We may think that's a little contradictory, but it's not. In essence, what Jesus was saying is go ahead and sleep because the time for you to have been assistance to me has completely passed. Now, go ahead and get your rest because things are going to happen and you're going to need it. In essence, is what Christ was saying. And so we go from the Savior where this meeting happened, to the seditionist. And of course we know who that is, that's Judas. Judas came to the Savior, came face to face, and he was prepared, wasn't he? Judas brought with him a whole crew of soldiers and Jewish leaders. Notice what John said, John 18 verse 3. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. For one innocent, unarmed man, what a great fear they had of him. And we see his utter perversity as he approaches the Lord, as he conspired with the Jewish officials, as he went to the very place he knew Jesus would go to find comfort. And I don't think it's altogether unlikely that he first went to the upper room where he had last seen him. Not having found him there, He knew where to go look for him because he knew where he would be. But having found him uh, there, he approached him as the seditionist that he is. And Luke said that he he identified him as a uh, with a kiss. He walked up to him and he gave him a kiss. Now here's what Matthew uh, added. He said he approached him and saluted him with "Hail, Rabbi," and then kissed him. I think the response that that Jesus gave him must have surely been chilling to Judas. Notice what he said. Matthew 26, 50 says, He he made the statement, Friend, do that which thou art come. Luke added to it, Betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Luke twenty two forty eight. So he was well aware of what was going on here. So we see that the reader goes from interacting with the Savior to the seditionist, and now we're introduced to the servant, Malchus. Malchus was the servant of the high priest, we learn in Luke twenty-two fifty, meaning that he was the high priest's personal assistant. We might call him the hatchet man. And if there was anyone in the crowd who was an enemy of the Christ, it was Malchus. He went there to fulfill the demands of the high priest which was to arrest Jesus. No doubt he was uh, well rewarded for his actions, for doing things like that. And as he went up, he would have been standing in front of the guard, right behind Judas, and that explains why Peter attacked him. He was the first one there that he could have gotten to. Judas had walked up to the Savior. Malchus would have been standing behind Judas, the guards behind him. And so Peter attacked him. We see those three men coming together. The high priest, Judas, Malchus, what would culminate in the murder of the Christ. So we see a meeting in the garden, but the traitor brought with him a mob. That's our second point. 
He didn't come alone. Judas was a coward. The high priest was a coward. And all those men were cowards. Now, the events, again, far from taking the Lord by surprise, were anticipated by Him. He knew there would be a confrontation. He was expecting it. He knows all things, right? Uh, John 18, verse 4. He knew what was going to happen, but he would still accommodate what Judas was doing. Why? For our benefit. For all those who were faithful at that time and for all who would be faithful in the coming years. As this traitorous action happened, as we read the account, there's no question on who was in charge, is there? We read about Christ and His full dignity was in complete control. We read about His responses, the questions that He asks. He wasn't surprised in any way. Did He fear for His life? I think a very unreasonable person would not fear for their lives. Of course He did. Of course He feared for His life. He knew what was going to happen. He didn't look forward to that. He knew what the scourging meant. He knew what it meant to be nailed to a cross and and hung there. He knew all of that. But Malchus had come to arrest him by force, if necessary, and he brought this band of men. Now, this band of men would have been the Roman cohort. The Roman cohort would have been those guards stationed in uh, in uh, Jerusalem to make sure that the people were in subjection to the Roman rule, and they would have been a part of uh, Pilate's personal guard. Now, they might have numbered anywhere from four to 600. Now, it's not likely that that many would have gone there, but they may have had a couple of a hundred people gone to arrest this unarmed man. But the confrontation had barely begun when Jesus confirmed His identity to the mob. Notice what He did. His submission was voluntary, wasn't it? But wasn't that an integral part of His plan? To voluntarily give Himself? He wasn't like the Old Testament sacrifices. You had to go get that animal. You had to choose that animal. Jesus wasn't like that. He was a man who was perfect in all aspects who volunteered to be the sacrifice. You didn't have to run Him down. You didn't have to chase Him. And therefore, John 18 verse 4, He boldly stepped forward and He said, Who are you seeking? Who do you seek? Why would He have made that statement? He knew full well. Who, who they were seeking. Well, I think for a couple of reasons. First of all, he did it to openly identify himself. I am Jesus. I think he did it so to bring to the full consciousness of those men what they were doing. They were arresting an innocent man and doing it illegally. And of course, he wanted his disciples not to be harmed. I am the one you're looking for, not these people. I think those are the reasons he did it. And of course, they answered him by saying, Jesus of Nazareth. Now here's something that's very important. Christ said, I am He. Notice in your Bibles, the He is in italics. That means it's been added by the translators to be able to properly uh, present the meaning. And which is fine, doesn't harm the text at all. But don't you find it interesting that that is the name of God? Because really what Jesus said was, I am. I am. 
You recall back in the desert of Midian when Moses, speaking to the burning bush, speaking to the second person of the Godhood, he said, Who do I tell the people sent me? I am that I am. That's God's personal name, isn't it? Jesus said, I am. He was the one. That's the name of God. And His boldness was a point of concern, I believe, for that mob. Do you remember what they did? They shrunk back. At His statements, they shrunk back. Now, a lot of people, if you study that, have a lot of reasons to uh, to uh, understand that that was a miracle and they'll put that forth. But I don't think Christ cast some kind of a spell upon them. They'd never heard a person like that speak in the way. They'd already made that statement prior to this, hadn't they? No one ever spake as he did. Why didn't you bring him back? You were supposed to arrest him. Have you heard him speak? He speaks with authority. Not like the, the Pharisees and the scribes. But we see the, the simple majesty of his bearing, his bold exhibition of who he was. I am. And they shrunk back. I think that was the result of fear and awe, not a spell cast upon them. The actions from the meeting and from within the mob culminated in the final miracle that the Lord would ever perform prior to His death. That's our third and final point. Before any soldier could lay hands on the Lord, what happened? Well, we can always count on the Apostle Peter for doing something that maybe he shouldn't do in his haste and in his rage. He drew his sword and he lifted the ear of Malchus from his head. He tried to make good on that boast, didn't he? I'll not only follow you, I'll follow you to the death. I think he meant it. Obviously, he pulled his sword and he went to, to kill the man, but fortunately for Malchus, he was able to dodge the blow and it only got his ear, didn't it? Of course, it wouldn't have made any difference. If Christ can heal an ear, He can bring someone back to the dead. He had already uh, proven that. But notice what Peter did. He was still confused along with the other apostles. They were still thinking of the kingdom in a material sense, a physical sense. We understand that uh, they thought even at the, re- at the ascension of Christ, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when will you restore the kingdom? They were still thinking it was physical. But Jesus rebuked him, didn't he? Lord, shall we smite with the sword right after Judas kissed the Savior? Peter didn't wait for the answer. He just drew the sword, right? Because again, he's thinking physical. But it's evident of Jesus' view of that. The rage of Peter led to a rebuke of the Lord. He simply said, Suffer ye thus far? Luke twenty two fifty one, And he demanded, Put again thy sword in thy place. For all they that take the sword shall perish by the sword. Matthew 26, 52. And then he focused his attention on Peter. He told Peter a few things that he should have already known. Notice the question. Matthew 26, beginning with 53. In essence, he said, don't you know? Or do you think I'm not able to pray to the Father and He send uh, 12 legions of angels? I think if we do the math there, that's about 72,000 angels. If it was a common legion, Roman legion. But then he made the statement, but how shall then the Scripture be fulfilled? 
that thus it must be. Isn't that an amazing statement? In the very face of imminent death, Jesus still thought of others. And He tried to prove His deity to them and teach them what they needed to know. And as He reached forward, He touched the side of Malchus' head and He restored the ear that had been taken from him. He not only had the power power to heal the ear of Malchus, he also had the power not to save himself. I think maybe we overlook that sometimes. As we look back at the history of the Christ, he never, not one time, ever performed a miracle for self-benefit. Never. It was always to help someone else. It was always to help grab their attention to listen to what he had to say about eternal life. And the good news is, right before they dragged the Savior away to his death, Malchus stood up, he defended the Lord, he said, wait a minute, did you not see what he did? That's not what happened, is it? I don't know that Malchus said anything. We don't have it recorded for us. Christ was simply dragged away And unlike blind Bartimaeus, he did not praise Jesus in the presence of others. He didn't follow Jesus telling everyone who would listen the wonderful things that the very Son of God had done for him. That's not what Malchus did. He didn't glorify him. The final miracle would not lend itself to Malchus being able to listen and hear what Christ had to say. Throughout his ministry, Jesus demanded, If you have ears, hear. If you have ears, listen. If you have ears, do what I asked you to do. It's a simple matter, isn't it? We see that throughout. As long as time continues, there will always be opportunity to hear. But we're not sure how long time will continue. And individually, our time on earth may end way before time ever stops. And so we have to take advantage of the time we have. Paul said, today is the day of salvation. Let us not waste the opportunity to hear the gospel, to listen to it, allowing it to manifest faith in our hearts and to grow faith and for us to have belief, causing us to have a desire to repent of our past sins because godly sorrow has worked us to the point where we are sorry for what we've done to God, confessing that He is the Son of God, that He lived on this earth, that He died and rose again, walking out of the tomb on the third day, ascending back to heaven, ruling over His kingdom as we speak, and then submitting to baptism so our sins can be washed away. Let's not waste an opportunity obey the gospel plan of salvation. Of course, along with that plan of salvation, there is what we know as the second law of pardon. To ask God to forgive us of sin if we've stepped outside the light, we've reverted back to our old lifestyles, we have to come into contact with the blood of Jesus some way, somehow, if we're going to be forgiven. We understand in in initial salvation how that's done, but we need to continually maintain contact, uh, 1 John 1. We have to walk in the light so the blood can continuously cleanse us. And we do that through repentance of sin. Still, godly sorrow worketh repentance. 
confessing our sins, maybe publicly if necessary, and asking God to forgive us. If you have need to answer the Lord's invitation at this time, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.